You don't have to, to answer out loud, but I do want you just to consider for a moment in that this question, if you could, if you could wish for anything in the world, what would that be? If you, if you had the ability to wish for anything in the world, don't have to say it out loud, but, but what would that be? The, the 2005 reality TV show Three Wishes asked that very question in small towns across America. And in each heartwarming episode, the producers made wishes come true. They gave three people the one thing they wanted more than anything else in life. In fact, the TV producers said to these people, money is no object. Which may explain why the show was canceled after only one season. <laughs> Making wishes come true can get very expensive. But again, let me ask you, not to say it out loud, but just consider, if you could wish for anything in the world what would it be? And I would encourage you to think beyond just what TV producers could provide for you. If you could have anything, what would it be? Would it be maybe great wealth? Maybe a certain athletic ability? Uh, maybe a certain body type? Maybe a larger home? Maybe what you would wish for, or maybe what's going through your mind right now is something a little less extravagant and more reasonable, like maybe what you'd really like is a stable job that could provide for you and your family, or maybe good health, or, or maybe a godly spouse, or maybe children of your own, or children who believe and are walking with the Lord. You'd have anything, what would it be? It's an attractive thought, isn't it? We, we love this idea that someone could grant us whatever we want. We like the idea of a genie in the bottle, right? And why is that? Why do we love the idea of having someone grant us our deepest wants and wishes? I, I think... It's because the question, it puts us in the driver's seat, doesn't it? We're the ones calling the shots. Because, I mean, do we not believe, do we not believe that we know what's best for us? We know what's best for our lives. Do we not think that we believe we know what our greatest needs are, and if we only had our wishes come true and all our fears and our concerns, anxieties, would just go away. Then, then I would be, then you would be truly happy and content, right? This morning we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And what you need to know is that the church in Ephesus experienced many of the same problems and difficulties we face today. I mean, based on what Paul writes in the following chapters, it's quite safe to say that the Ephesian church had relational conflicts. 
They had problems in their marriages. They felt the strong pressure to conform to worldly ideologies. They had fears. They had problems with their kids. In fact, if the producers from that reality TV show, Three Wishes, came to ancient Ephesus, I bet their answers wouldn't be much different from yours. They had many of the same problems and difficulties we experience today. And you know who knew about their problems and difficulties? The Apostle Paul. So after describing the great work our God accomplished in saving the Ephesians and us, you know what Paul does next in this letter? He prays for them. Yet strikingly, Paul does not mention any of these problems or issues in his prayer. He, he knew about them, yet when he prays for them, he does not mention them. Now, why is that? Is it because Paul doesn't care for them? Is that why he doesn't mention these things? I don't think so. Rather, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul knew what their great need was, and that's what he chose to pray for. And faith, I want to argue that the Ephesians' great need is our great need too. It's, it's what we ought to wish for. And what is that? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. That's page 967 in that paperback Bible and the seat in front of you. In this prayer, we not only get an insight into the Apostle Paul's heart, but more importantly, as I mentioned, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, I'm going to suggest that we learn what our great need is. So follow along with me. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Paul writes this. He says, For this reason, and that's hearkening back to the great work our triune God accomplished in saving us. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now here he's going to share the content of, of his prayer. What does Paul pray for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, meaning the most excellence, that all that there is that is worth worshiping, is there. The Father of glory, here's what he prays for, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He's asking that the Holy Spirit would give them a greater knowledge of God. But that's not all. He says in verse, 14, uh, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts, 
enlightened. That you may know, and he's going to list three things, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, notice, towards us. If you're the underlying type, that's going to be an important phrase. Towards us who believe. And now he's going to talk about this great power that's towards us. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is God's good word. Have, have you ever created a personalized greeting card? You know, either like at Walgreens or Shutterfly? I'm talking about? Okay. It, it's pretty much all I do now uh, if, for my family. If I, if I want to give a card to my wife or to my kids, I just go online, throw in a couple pictures, and make it. Because I don't know about you, for me at least, it's really hard to find a card that expresses what I really want to say. In fact, even more than that, it's hard to find a card that actually describes the person you're giving the card to. Because really, at the end of the day, when you buy a stock card and you go through, you know, they're in Walgreens or whatever it is, when you buy a stock card, they really aren't your words, are they? No, you're, you're using someone else's words who doesn't even know the person you're giving the card to, right? Faith, I want you to look back once more at what Paul writes there in verse 15. Let me read it once more. And actually, I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Paul writes this. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. You know what, faith? Even though these are not my words, as your pastor, I cannot think of a better description of you. If I had to choose a phrase, as your pastor, that describes you, it would be this verse. Faith, you have a strong trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You love the Lord. And you know how I know this? I know this because of your actions. Your actions prove that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Over these past 14 years that 
I've been blessed to be your pastor. You have shown yourself, one of the ways that I know you love the Lord, you've shown yourself to be exceptionally generous. Not only in your giving, but in your time and of your service to others. You have consistently demonstrated that you believe, you believe, that God has lavished His grace upon you in Christ by the way you lavishly give of your resources and time. Furthermore, I am proud of your love for all the saints. You know, at our, at our 14-year anniversary a couple weeks ago, I was taken back at how many people, during the testimonies, how many people gave thanks for the relationships in this church. Specifically, how they felt loved and welcomed. Faith, such God-honoring love is the fruit of a church who understands God's love for them in Christ. And faith, that's you. And like Paul, I give thanks. Faith, Ephesians 1.15 is you. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the saints. So my encouragement this morning is for us to make Paul's prayer our own. That is to follow Paul's example and to pray this prayer for one another. Because you know what Paul reveals in this passage? Paul reveals what your great need is and what my great need is. And you know what that is? It's to treasure God. In fact, we could summarize Paul's prayer in this way. Your great need is to treasure God. And I want to show you and notice how clearly this point is made. In verses 16 through 17, notice Paul prays that God would give the Ephesian believers the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The spirit of wisdom, as we talked about, it refers to the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul asks that the Spirit would give the Ephesians a greater knowledge of God. But that's not all Paul prays for. If Paul stopped there, this would be a very different sermon. But he doesn't stop in verse 17. No, look carefully at what Paul says next in verse 18. Notice Paul prays that God would enlighten the eyes of their what? Their heart. This is significant. In the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions. As some of you know, know in Scripture, the heart refers to the mind, will, and emotions. In other words, it's, it's your directional system, your steering wheel. I like to think of it like this. Those of you that have an, uh, a smartphone or an iPhone, the heart is the, you could say, is the operating system that runs the apps of your life. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, he says, the things most highly treasured occupy the heart. Notice, the things most highly treasured occupy the heart. The heart, the very thing Paul prays would be enlightened with the knowledge of God. He says, the things most highly treasured occupy the heart. The center of the personality 
embracing mind, will, emotions, and thus most cherished treasure subtly, but infallibly controls the whole person's direction and values. You see, when Paul prays that the Ephesian believers would know God, having the eyes of their heart enlightened, he's not praying that they would pass a theology exam. He's not asking that they would know certain facts about God. No, Paul is praying for something far more significant. He's praying at the core of their being, their heart, they would see the God, the Father of glory, and treasure God. That is, living for Him, living for God, would be their aim rather than living for themselves. Now consider for a moment all the things Paul could have prayed for the Ephesians, but did not. For instance, he knew persecution was coming. He knew there was a major division between the Jews and the Gentiles. He knew there were many there in that church who were struggling with their background in the occult practices of Asia Minor. He knew there were relational conflicts. He knew there were marriage problems. He knew there were parenting issues. Yet of all the things Paul could have prayed for, what does he believe to be their great need? To treasure God, the Father of all glory. And faith, based on this passage, I want to argue that is our great need too. So, Faith, please hear me. Based on Paul's prayer in this text, I want you to consider that your great need in a disappointing marriage, your great need in a relational conflict with your child, your great need in that difficult work situation, your great need when you're waiting to hear the results back from the lab is to treasure God. In those very moments, your great need is to esteem and to treasure God above everything else and to live for Him. In fact, as we work our way through this book, we're going to see that this is the foundational truth upon which Paul builds his specific commands in the second half of the book. Because look, if somebody is treasuring something other than God in their heart, no amount of exhortation or no amount of Bible study is going to bring about life change. And I have to, I have to confess to you, sadly, I have known of plenty of men uh, in my years in Bible college and seminary, who have had their physical eyes open to read and study the deep things of God, but the eyes of their heart were closed. They could, they could quote dead theologians, they could cite the sharpest commentaries, they could wax eloquently concerning theological matters, yet the glories of God 
had not taken root at the core level of their being. They needed the eyes of their heart enlightened. And you know how I knew this? I knew this because they were easily angered. They were rude to their wife. They were arrogant and boastful. They they had no self-control concerning their appetites. And they definitely did not do what we see Paul doing in this text, and that is giving thanks to God for others. While their physical eyes were able to see and know God, while their hands could type about the nature of God and their mouth speak of His excellencies, their, their heart was not treasuring the glories of God. Treasuring something else. And, and I just, to be clear, please hear me, this failure to treasure God in your heart is not only re, uh, reserved for those who have gone to Bible, college, or seminary. All of us, especially those of us who have been in church and have sat under teaching and have known the Scriptures, we too need to ask ourselves, what am I treasuring? Because look, it does you and nobody around you any good to know the things about God, but you treasure something other than God in your heart. And I just want to say a word to those of you who do know the Scriptures well, who have been trained or have grown up in church and know the Scriptures. We of all people should be terrified because we're without excuse. So how can you treasure God? Because here's the deal. The, the eyes of our hearts are often looking to treasure other things. So how can we do this? Well, first, I would encourage us, we must confess and repent of things we're treasuring other than Him. And, 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 and you know this. Is there something in your life you're willing to sin to get and sin if you can't get? If there is, and you can answer that question, that is a bad treasure. Confess and turn, confess to the Lord that this is sin. I'm treasuring this above you, God. Turn from it and turn to God. But then secondly, how do, how do we come to treasure the glories of our God? Well, I think, I don't want to be Captain Obvious here, but I think we do what Paul does, and that's we pray. <laughs> We pray that our heart would see several things. It's the same thing that Paul wants the Ephesians to see about God. As several commentators have pointed out, these several truths are all distinguished by that word what in English. So you see there in verse 18 that you may know what is the hope. You may know what are the riches and what is the greatness. Right? Yet, before we examine what those are, I want to challenge us as a church, okay? And I'll, um, if, if you're the note-taking type, I would encourage you to take some notes. But this is my challenge. I want to challenge every member at faith, here at faith, to pray not only for yourself, but two other people in this church every day this week. I want to encourage you to, to pray for the person above your name in the church directory and the person below your name 
in the church directory who, who are not family members. And my encouragement for us this week, every day, is to pray for those two people and to pray this prayer for them. Pray that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts, that they would treasure God, and that they would come to see the very things Paul spells out in this text. So that's my encouragement. Can we do this? Pray for one another? Okay. So first, what should we pray for? How should we pray as, as the text, sermon title goes? First, pray that your heart would see and others, God's hope for you. I'm going to go back to verse uh, 17 there through, through 18. Oh, sorry, 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So he's asking that the spirit would work in their life work in them to, to give them greater knowledge of God. Notice, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, this is where we're getting the treasuring from, and number one, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Um, Aaron Kerti, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, he's the director of the medical ethics program at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. And several years ago, he wrote a powerful article entitled, Dying of Despair. And in the article, he observes the startling rise in deaths from suicide and drug overdoses. He also cites a number of long-term studies that have analyzed the difference between high-risk persons who survive and those who die by suicide. And here's his conclusion of this research. He writes this. He says, over a 10-year span, it turns out that the one factor most strongly predictive of suicide is not how sick the person is, nor how many symptoms he exhibits, nor how much physical pain he is suffering, nor whether he is rich or poor. The most dangerous factor is a person's sense of hopelessness. He says, the man without hope is the likeliest candidate for suicide. And then he says, we cannot live without hope. And you know what? Faith, the Bible would agree. We cannot live without hope. Indeed, in many ways, we live off hope, don't we? The problem is, the things we often put our hope in are insecure and unstable. Now again, notice carefully what Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. He prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know what? Say it. The hope of His calling. That is God's calling of this. This refers to the effectual call of God, wherein the Father calls the elect to the Son 
through the power of the Spirit. True, we called on God to save us, but our call was in response to His. And what hope does God call and give the believer? It's not a hope of better circumstances, nor is it a hope of relief from hard times. You know what? It's something even better. And that is the hope that one day we will see God face to face and enjoy Him for all eternity. The hope of our calling is conformity to Christ and capacity to enjoy Him. Because look, outside of Christ, we had no hope. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath under the just condemnation of God. Yet, Christian, through God's saving call, we have God for all eternity. Amen? This is why it grieves me deeply when I hear Christians say, I'm hopeless. This is precisely what Paul is praying against. Christians, we have the greatest hope there is. God Himself. Because look, biblical hope is, un, is unlike any other hope. You know, often uh, we use the word hope to mean a desire that you're not sure will come to pass. Like, will I win my fantasy football game today? I hope so. Will my wife let me watch football all afternoon? I hope so. Probably not. Biblical hope is different. It's certain. Biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty that hasn't happened yet, but you know is going to happen. What God has determined to give you and what He is making you into is settled forever, Christian. And look, it's this hope. If you believe that God is who He says He is as presented in Scripture, you'll see everything else as rubbish compared to having Him. And the fact that we have Him and the hope of eternity with Him is what can sustain us in times of suffering. It's what can keep us from giving way to sin and temptation. Let us pray that our hearts would be enlightened to this truth. Second, pray that your heart would see God's delight in you. Look at what we read next in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. In January of 2020, Kathy Boone died. She was 49 years old, and prior to her death, she was homeless, living on the streets in Portland, Oregon. Yet what made her death so tragic, and the reason why it got national news, was because she died without claiming her $900,000 inheritance. 
According to the Associated Press, listen to this, she lived the last five years of her life homeless, unaware that she had a $900,000 inheritance to claim. Unlike Kathy Boone, in Ephesians 1, Paul wants us to know that as Christians, we have a great inheritance. This was Paul's point back in verse 14. You know what that inheritance is? <laughs> Listen to me. It's everything given to Jesus because as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, we are co-heirs with Him. Through our union with Christ, Christian, we have the world, God Himself, and redeemed and glorified God bodies as our inheritance. As one pastor, John Piper, rightly said, he's like, our inheritance is so great that it makes every trouble in life seem small by comparison. Amen? However, the verse I just read is not referring to this inheritance. It's referring to something else. True, we have an inheritance awaiting us as Christians, one that the Holy Spirit makes sure we acquire possession of, but that's not what Paul is referring to in verse 18. No, you know what the inheritance is in this verse? Us. Paul is saying that we, God's people, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, God views us. We are to God. We are His inheritance. As several commentators have pointed out, we see this concept taught throughout the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy 7.9, right? God's people are God's inheritance. And what this means is, as we often sing, those He saves are His delight. And here's what makes this truth all the more glorious. In faith, it's a truth that's often overlooked. And you know what that is, and I, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but this is the truth that's often overlooked, and that is, you are unlovely. And so am I. You are. You know it, and God does. God, God knows your selfish ambition. He knows your haughty and prideful thoughts. He sees your arrogance. He sees your love for yourself. Friend, let's not kid ourselves. I'm unlovely. You are unlovely. And here's the amazing truth of this passage. Christian, although you are unlovely, you are still loved by God. That is, you are loved not because you are worthy of God's love, but because he is gracious and loving himself. Amen? I mean, what a great love. Who loves you like that? You know what the answer is? No one. No one but our God. So let us treasure him. Let us live for him who loves us in spite of our flaws, our sins, though we constantly sin against him. He loves us and He delights to have us. And then finally, pray the eyes of your heart would see God's power towards you. 
So pray your heart would see God's hope for you, God's delight in you, and now, as Paul makes clear, his power towards you. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is a, I mean, we could spend years in this passage. It's so great. Listen to what he says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And now he's elaborating on this power that is at work towards us. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at, his, at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And I love this. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come, as if there's any doubt of the supremacy and the glory and the authority of Christ. But he goes on, he says, and he put all things under his feet, echoes to Psalm 110, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to think once again about the question we started with. Again, you don't have to say it aloud, but if you could wish for anything in the world, what would it be? My guess is, and this is a guess, and so I'm be wrong. My guess is your answer probably has to do with some hardship or difficulty you're currently experiencing. And is it not true that often, most often, our greatest wish, our greatest desires is relief from those hardships, is it not? However, what the New Testament makes clear is that God has given us a greater agenda for us in our hardships. While our agenda is often relief from suffering, God's agenda is redemption through suffering. That is, God wants to use the hardships we experience in order to purify us of indwelling sin and conform us into the image of His Son. So when we're conformed into His image, we'd have a greater capacity to enjoy Him. And here's what I know of you, Faith Community Church. Again, I just want to, I'm just speaking to you, Faith Community Church. This is what I know. As your pastor, I know you desire to honor God. I know you desire to live for Him and to please Him, especially in the midst of sufferings and hardships. I know this of you, Faith. And Christian, I have good news for you. As Paul makes clear in the passage I just read, the most powerful strength in the solar system is at work in you to accomplish precisely that, especially in the midst of suffering and hardships. And this, I want to argue, is what Paul wants the eyes of your hearts to see. As verse 19 makes clear, Paul's prayer is that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. You know who that is? That's you. That's me. That's every one of us who have put our faith 
and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. God has power towards us who believe. A power, I want to argue, as the rest of the New Testament in Ephesians spells out, a power that enables us to please Him. But actually, let me ask, is this true of you? Have you come to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Let me ask you this, friend. Are you one of those who believe? Friend, the good news of the Bible is that Jesus died to forgive and save rebellious people who have chosen to live for themselves rather than God. People like you and me. Indeed, Jesus died to save people who have chosen to treasure the things of this world rather than God. This is, what, this is what we have to understand. Treasuring something other than God is not a light matter. No, it is sin against a holy God. And our sin earns us God's just condemnation. And it gets worse. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to escape this judgment. This is why we need Jesus. Because Jesus lived the perfect life we have failed to live. He died the death we were owed. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God we deserve for our sins. Then three days later, as this text makes clear, Christ rose from the grave and is now seated, not on a chair, but on a throne reigning as the sovereign king of the entire universe. And you know why Jesus is seated? It's because his work is complete. His work to save sinners is done. There's nothing left to do. And the good news of Scripture is that because of what Christ has done, friend, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You can have the hope of eternal life. Listen to me, simply by faith. Friend, salvation is received, not achieved. Jesus achieved salvation for us. What we are required to do is receive it by faith and faith alone. Have you done that? For those, those of you who have, look at how verses 19 through 23 beautifully illustrates just how powerful God is and the work He accomplished in His Son. Notice Paul speaks of four things. He speaks of Christ's resurrection from the dead, his enthronement in heaven, his exaltation above powers and authority, and then his headship over all things. Indeed, notice, notice how all things have been put under Christ's feet. Did you see it there in verse 22? As I mentioned, we hear echoes of Psalm 110. That psalm speaks of God's enemies being made a footstool. And actually, look at the picture Paul's painting there. There in 22 and 23. Notice, since all things are under Christ's feet, he's there by the head over everything. Especially the church. That phrase, head, refers to one who is of supreme rake or preeminent status. In fact, Paul is going to reference in, later on in the book the word head. You might want to circle it. Please hear me. The word head 
does not mean source. It means authority and position of preeminence and authority, not source. Now, okay, what does verse 23 mean? As you can imagine, a lot of ink has been spilled on this verse with the filling there. I take this difficult phrase in the passive sense rather than active. This is to say, the church is the fullness of Christ, not because it fills him, but because he fills it. And as the context makes clear, Christ is filling it with power, power to us who believe, to persevere and live lives that glorify Him. As one commentator has insightfully said, he says, quote, Jesus is filling His church in a special way with His Spirit, grace, and gifts. This is to say He's filling us with the tools and power for us to honor Him. So here's the good news again, Christian. In the midst of your back pain, in the midst of your difficult work environment, in the midst of your hard marriage, in the midst of speaking with and shepherding a difficult child, listen to me, Christian. God's mighty power is there to help you fight sin and temptation. Because you have the strongest power in the solar system, you can honor your Savior and not sin when your spouse sins against you. You can humble yourself and own your sin and ask for forgiveness rather than justifying yourself. You can choose not to repay evil with evil, but with good. Do you believe that? Let's pray that we all would. Faith, if you are ever asked what is your greatest wish, my prayer is that your response would be this. I already have it for I have Christ. Indeed, may Paul's statement in Philippians 3.8 be true of us when he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Faith may God be our greatest treasure. Amen? Let's pray.